From Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land, it's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, we have Dan Cook, pioneering co-op game designer, co-founder of indie game studio SpryFox, author of the legendary Lost Garden website, and a truly inspiring guy. Come along as Dan takes us on a whirlwind tour of indie gaming life, stage gate funnels, remote collaboration, and the magic of small groups for getting things done. Often when people try collaboration, they try to put a whole bunch of people in there all at once. Suddenly, like everyone's going through the standard forming, storming, norming, and performing. Like you form a group, the f- group has to like fight it out with e- themselves and figure out what they're doing and why they're doing it and who's in charge. And then you finally get some social norms. <laughs> at the end of all that, you get to uh, actually get your job done. And when you have lots of people, the storming and the uh, norming phases of that group formation take a very, very long time. In fact, they may never actually converge. Dan has a deep understanding of social dynamics in online gaming. Our talks blow my mind on a regular basis. I'm thrilled to share his insights with you today. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Tell us a bit about your background. I went to school to get a degree in physics because I thought I was going to become a um, a computer chip engineer, some flavor of electrical engineer. Um, But then I got sidetracked because I did art on the side. So I did lots and lots of pixel art. So I ended up for a summer job, instead of pumping gas one year, I ended up uh, working for a company called Epic Mega Games, making pixel art for uh, one of their games. That sort of turned eventually into a design role, and I started doing game design full-time after that. Then I sort of bumped along in the industry as you do, and picked up more design skills, picked up UI skills. A lot of it was trial by fire. You know, it's like, this game needs UI. Okay, let's go and burn through seven UIs and learn why they all are horrible. And then from there, I went into developing software. So we made art tools for um, 3D cards, which were new and exciting at the time. And uh, I learned about product design, and I learned about Scrum and Agile and all the ways that you could possibly schedule a project. And again, it was trial by fire. It's like, we need to do this how we're doing it doesn't work, how can I educate myself, read as many books as I can and try to put it into practice in a live team to see if any of these things are effective. Along the way, I started getting some pushback that I was a little bit too much on the artsy side. So at that point, I went off and got my MBA and I started learning the language business. Um, And then that transferred over to a job at Microsoft. And then I started my own studio about five years ago um, Spry Fox, which is where I'm at now. And we are turning out strange little innovative games. Some of which turn into hits. Yes, yes. We've had a couple of hits so far. We've had uh, one called Triple Town and we've had another one called an MMO called Realm of the Mad God. So we're all over the place. Triple Town was a uh, success on mobile devices. And then Realm of the Mad God was actually an online MMO that was also a success. So we tend to release all over the place. We have experience with all sorts of different areas, consoles, online games, mobile. Um, I've done, I've dabbled in uh, consulting on the side for uh, places like uh, WordPress and such as well. Interesting. So 
earlier, you and I were talking about the process that led to these hits and the process that also led to other games you released, which involved lots of prototyping and lots of funneling your your ideas so that you might be starting and working on several prototypes and only ending up shipping one. Can you talk to us about that process and what you've learned about what works when you're trying to figure out where the right product is? Yeah. So this is, so one of the early lessons I learned about the game industry is that failure is very, very likely. It's a highly, highly volatile product space. So you have your dream idea and you try it out. And there's probably only a one in five to one in 10 chance that even if you execute wonderfully, that it's actually going to work out. So um, one of the things that I got really excited about is can we make that process of making these games in this highly volatile space, can we make that more efficient and less expensive and try more things, find success more quickly, all, all the things that, you know, reduce your cost of development and, and increase your chance of success. Early on, I ran into this model called the StageGate model, which is uh, a popular product development model. And the idea is imagine a, um, imagine a funnel, if you will. And at the top of this funnel is a whole bunch of tiny little experiments that you're doing. These are like projects that you're spending. Uh, we spend on our games, we probably spend two days to five weeks on for those sort of smaller, smaller projects. Um, and then we, uh, then that's sort of a stage. That's a sort of an early concept stage, prototyping stage. And the gate says, what are our criteria for killing these projects? Um, like what's a good project that will pass through? And so we look at things like, hey, is this game prototype engaging for at least 15 minutes. And if it's not, then we've got issues. If we look at things like, um, does this game, is our, is our rate of progress on improving the fun of this game fast enough? You can sort of think of it, I think of it as prototype momentum. If you add an idea and it works, that's a success. And if you add an idea and it doesn't work, that's a failure. And you're looking for projects that have a much higher rate of success than uh, the other ones. Like sometimes you run into a project that is just painful to work on. You're like, oh, if I add this idea, it doesn't work. If I add this other idea, it doesn't work. I add this other idea, it doesn't work. And that's, to me, that's a low momentum project. I've tried for years to turn those type of things around and it's almost impossible. At this point, I say, just never mind those projects. I'll just move on to a new idea and try that out. So you do these, um, these stages and these gates. So during the stage, you're developing a bunch of experiments and during the gate, you're killing them. And then you move some of those onto the next stage and you invest in them further. And then you kill a bunch of those and you keep doing this until you have like one or two concepts at the very end of that funnel that are actually going to be released into the world. PopCap does the same process. They do. And uh, PopCap's a, a fascinating example of where it can go wrong. At one point in their history, they had a huge issue where their gates became so rigorous that almost nothing escaped. Basically, everything that came out of them had to be, you know, a hundred million dollar game or it wasn't worth uh, releasing. Their pipeline of new innovative projects actually dried up. And if you look at the um, at their many of their successful projects, they're ones that escaped the standard process. 
process was too rigid and therefore it was only by going outside of the process that people were actually able to make hit games. Wow. So that really speaks to that you need different processes at different stages of your company's growth. You do. You do. And uh, there's certain demands on it. Like uh, one of the flaws of the stage gate process is that essentially bureaucracy sets in and you get people who are like, well, there was this one example back in three years ago where this didn't work. So let's put a little criteria in that deals with that. And in doing so, that law has suddenly killed something that was really going to be quite successful. So for super large companies that implement uh, StageGate, one of the things that they've had to learn is to be a little loose about it. Keep those gates a little loose. Don't get too anal retentive about the process. You've done a lot of early stage product work. What are some of the mistakes that you see people making that you watch out for? (laughs) So many, so many opportunities to to fail. Um, So uh, um, not testing early enough, not showing it to people, um, not showing it to potential customers or users early enough, not listening to them when they express vague doubt about your your idea um uh sometimes it's really really good to dig into that vague doubt um and ask uh there's a is it five whys or three whys or uh, I yeah, forget the the, five whys yeah you basically ask say so so you're expressing some discomfort about that why is that and then you you keep digging in a little further and often you'll find some wonderful nuggets of insight um for example um one of the things that we're working on right now is a, uh, we just got a grant for a financial literacy game. And uh, we were like, oh, well, we could have this little like Sims-like life simulator. And um, we could have people like, you know, live out a life and they could learn like the financial decisions they make throughout their life relatively quickly. Um, and uh, we kept getting this sort of vague like i don't know if that's a good idea a lot of people have tried something similar and it's it doesn't seem to really work all that well and uh the nugget of it which was a really wonderful nugget that we can act on is um if you're poor you don't like playing a game where you start out poor um it's not an enticing fantasy or an engaging fantasy for you um and so we will we'll build that insight into the game um, and if we hadn't like listened to that, which we haven't on some projects in the past, um, then the entire project could have been fundamentally flawed from the very start. Um, so, so ask, talk, talk to customers, show your, show your stuff early. Um, the other one is being, uh, this has actually been the hardest one for me is killing things. Can you like kill things early? Um, I talked about momentum on a project earlier. And one of the things that happens is you get emotionally invested in a project and it's the only project you have and you can't imagine your life without it. Um, And so even when all these negative signs are building up, you really don't have anything else to compare it to and you don't want to get rid of it. You'll find tons of excuses to not kill, kill the project. Um, so some of the things that um, um, have helped me deal with that is having more rigorous like understanding of like what a good project is and a bad project is. And then the other piece is um, 
leaning towards killing things earlier rather than not. Um, and then the last bit would be having alternatives, like always having like two or three alternatives in my, in my head at, at, at once so that even if I kill something, I know that I can jump onto another experiment, experiment which is also promising. Um, and that's, that's helped me deal with the, uh, the very expensive mistake of developing a bad experiment for too long. Wow. That was gold. <laughs> what you just said. <laughs> and it started with start the whole thing with lots of small experiments that you are not emotionally invested. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which Got is it. really think like a scientist about your ideas, not like a pitch person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I actually find pitches to be complete and absolute poison. Um, some of the, the worst projects that we've started working on um, and actually had to release have been pitch-based projects. Um, a, um, so I would say it's the difference between a story and a thing that needs to function. A story is a dream. A pitch is a dream. And you can hand wave and you can say all this wonderful stuff and you can get people emotionally invested. And once you've emotionally invested people, They'll, they'll charge into battle. They'll, they'll sacrifice themselves in order to uh, do something that's really, really, really stupid. Um, but if you're working at it from the perspective of, hey, this thing has to function, this thing has to work. I'm an engineer, I'm a scientist, and I'm building this thing that has to work for real humans in the real world. Um, you, you, don't, you don't have that lie being told you. You know, you're not bought into this lie. You're bought into like, does this thing work? What are the metrics? What are the results? And it's a very different perspective. So I actually try to eliminate pitch concepts and pitchness from my uh, prototyping process. You now run a company, Spry Fox. You've been running it for five years and you're co-founder, lead game designer. You do a lot of remote collaboration. Yes. Yeah. Um. You know, you all work remotely. And I think for many of us, first of all, that's reality. And second of all, we're really interested in lessons learned, how to do that well, what didn't work, things that worked particularly well. And of course, some of them are specific to you and what you're doing, but I think a lot of them are useful tips for everyone. So what have you learned about remote collaboration? Uh, so remote collaboration has been wonderful. It's allowed us to um, hire some of the best people in the world, no matter where they live. Um, it allows us to work from our homes. It allows us to set mostly our own hours um, for people with kids. It allows them to, you know, juggle kids and work to a, to a much greater degree than they would otherwise. And again, that opens up, um, you know, people who are in situations where they, they can't have a normal uh, nine to five job suddenly these very, very talented people are available to us to hire. Um, so there's a lot of good things about um, remote collaboration. Um, in order to make it work, um, what we've done is uh, we have, um, we have a, a, a way of communicating. Right now we're using primarily um, Slack. Um, we were using Skype earlier. Um, what we do is we... Um, uh, the sort of the secret sauce to all of our online collaboration is we split up into small groups. 
Um, so if there's a specific project-based group, we generally start with like uh, a game will start out with like two people in it. There'll be a designer and a programmer, usually me and a programmer. And we sort of set the sort of like, what are the rules for working within this group? And since there's only two people there, it's really easy to set up like, here's how we work together. It's really easy to get consensus. Um, it's really easy to have these sort of intimate one-on-one conversations with each other. You know, there are little chat conversations usually. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of get the team uh, coherent and uh, on track really quickly. Um, there's a, that's a really important thing. Like often when people try collaboration, they try to put a whole bunch of people in there all at once. And, uh, and, uh, suddenly like everyone's going through the standard, uh, what's the, what's the list forming, um, storming, norming, and performing. Like you form a group, the group has to like fight it out with themselves and figure out what they're doing and why they're doing it and who's in charge. Uh, and then you finally get some social norms. Uh, and then at, at the end of all that, you get to, uh, actually get your job done. Um, and when you have lots of people, the, um, the storming and the uh, norming phases of that group formation take a very, very long time. In fact, they may never actually converge. So by starting with a small group, we, we, we sort of like seed that and get that locked down early. In uh, Toyota, they used to have this thing where if someone sees a problem, they, they're able to stop the entire production line and say, hey, there's a problem here and deal with it immediately and fix that. And it ends up uh, increasing the overall quality of their production immensely because like problems don't linger. When you're dealing with remote working, it's really easy for problems to linger and sort of fester and bad, bad mojo spreads throughout the group. The interactions are so limited in many ways that you just don't have a lot of bandwidth, communication bandwidth to like do uh, what is called social grooming. It's like, hey, how's it going? How's your day going? Tell me about your kids. You know, like, oh, is that a new haircut? You know, that type of activity is very limited. If there are social problems or pro- group problems with the, the group dynamics issues, um, they don't get solved because there's not enough bandwidth to deal with them. So what we've implemented is sort of this sort of uh, stop the line moment where if the conversation starts going off track, if it starts to become um, like non-productive or people are arguing with each other or talking past each other, um, we just immediately jump on a Skype call. And usually within 10, 15 minutes, the issue is resolved and everyone goes back and is able to interact productively again. Um, so having that outlet, um, even though it's just a Skype call, it's not an in-person thing, has like prevented days of, of madness that I've seen on other teams or weeks of madness on other teams. So do you feel that the Skype call is providing some social grooming? It is. It provides social grooming. It lets you hear the context of someone's voice. It, uh, it, uh, it also just, for some reason, it seems to, um, it seems to close off conversations that are getting out of hand. Um, we've all been on email threads where people are kind of like ping ponging back and forth with one another and never actually getting anything accomplished. Um, and so the idea is to just, you know, um, shut that down and not, not, not shut down the conversation, but come to a conclusion and say, okay, here's what we, here's the issues. Here's what we agree on. Are we all good? What was, what, 
why were you so concerned about that? Let's let's surface that, talk to it, through it, and uh, and move on. Yeah, that's a great tip. What are some um, mistakes you've made that you now know not to make, or that you've seen other people make? The large groups. Um, I think large groups in uh, um, uh, online collaboration actually can be a huge problem. Because uh, you get a lot of people who aren't necessarily bought into the conversation, and it just becomes this—I uh, don't know—it becomes a very noisy hangout space, or it becomes a sort of a dead, dead room that no one pays attention to. Um, so keeping your team small seems to be super successful for us, um, uh, which limits the the areas that you can use use our methods on. Um, the uh, um, what was the other one? Oh, the other one, which is actually a huge issue for established companies, is often there's a group of people who are uh, co-located with one another. Um, and they're in the same office. Um, they're talking to each other all the time. Um, and because they have such high bandwidth communication, they are, um, they are advancing their social ties with one another and their language about the project and their understanding of the project at a much different rate than the people who they are collaborating with remotely. So you end up getting this sort of like um, this fissure between the, the uh, co-located people and the remote people. And this is especially problematic when there's only a handful of remote people because at that point, the handful of remote people are actually the minority and uh, people just start ignoring them. Um, and it's so much easier to just talk in person through things that you actually, uh, uh, it becomes this whole additional extra laborious process to like summarize what was discussed and send it out to people. And then they're not actually part of the conversation. So they feel a little alienated and you end up getting this rift between the two groups. Um, so what, what we do is, is basically everyone runs on the same clock. Everyone is basically or the same rate of communication because everyone is remote. Um, so we just don't get that, that, uh, that uh, disjunction between the two uh, social groups. Wow. That's incredibly valuable perspective. Thank you for sharing that. So you've mentioned social norms a few times, Dan. And I know that um, you've been uh, reading some studies on the side about social norms having some pretty unexpected findings. Um, could you just share a quick summary of what you're learning there about social norms and how, how they shape behavior? Yeah. So um, there's, this, there's this wonderful, uh, wonderful and disturbing uh, study, um, which uh, was um, – there's a message out there, which is people are really realizing that there's these implicit biases to a, a, like a lot of, uh, a lot of what we do. Um, and, uh, so, uh, as a response to that, we've been, uh, uh, people have been saying everybody's stereotypes, like everyone's stereotypes, be aware of it. Social, social message to people, like tell everyone that they stereotype so they can understand it and stop stereotyping less. Um, for example, one, one of the cases was um, if you have two equal candidates that are up for a promotion um, and the, one of them is a woman and one of them is a man, then the woman will actually be promoted less. And when she does get a promotion, she'll earn less than the man. 
So that's like a very clear stereotype that we don't want to happen. Um, and so if you actually tell hiring managers, hey, look, everyone's stereotypes, be aware of that and maybe do it less, um, this really perverse thing happens. Um, they actually end up uh, punishing the women more. They actually give them less promotions and less uh, a, a lower raises than they would otherwise. So the question is, okay, so wait, we tried to do this nice thing by, by making people aware that everyone stereotypes. Why is it that it had the exact opposite um, result that we were hoping for? And the answer is, is that um, a lot of what people do is based off what they think the expected behavior in society is. Um, so people were not actually saying, oh, I'm going to take an ethical stand against this and consciously um, to try to not stereotype. What they were hearing was the default behavior in society that everyone else is doing is stereotyping. Therefore, that's how I should behave. Um, which was just mind blowing to me. It's like, Oh wait, wait. So that says that people are not operating on an ethical basis. They're operating on this much, much lower um, sort of like flock behavior where they're watching what other people are doing. They're seeing what seems to be the expected standard behavior. And then they're unconsciously mimicking that. Um, so um so norms, the social norms of the environment end up being much more important than sort of our conscious uh, stating of like what we say is what we're going to do or what we say is ethically responsible. Um, so that's been that, that, that sort of insight has been influencing a lot of my design um, when I'm thinking of behavioral change and how, how we, uh, how we uh, sort of uh, create these human processes that get, get work done. Wow. Um, Sorry, I don't know. That's a that's a big load. No, that's, that, it's, it's kind of mind blowing. Um, are there other studies that came to that same conclusion? Yes. Yeah. There's a whole there's a whole bunch of uh, um, of, of work on this. Um, uh, it it goes back to um, the, um, the the Stanford uh, prison experiment um, where they they normalized um, people to be guards and prisoners. Um, there's some flaws in that that research, but people have been exploring it since then. Um, we see it we see it in the news um, with uh, uh, Abu Ghraib, um, with the uh, you know the the fine upstanding young American soldiers. Like how are how is it possible that they're doing these horrible things to these uh, prisoners in Iraq? Um, so you see you know you see the power of like nor- norms and, and socialization there. Um, there was another one on. Um, what was it? It was on cooperation. Let me see what was this one was. Um, oh yes. Um, this is, this is, this ties into my interest in cooperation. Um, uh, they found that um, players who were playing a cooperative game, such as a, um, you know, a, uh, a, a, you know, two people sitting on the couch cooperating with each other all, you know, on the same screen. Um people who played a a cooperative game versus a competitive game, the people who played the cooperative game would um, react in, in, in immediately afterwards, they would react like positively 
to other people. They would um, treat them less aggressively. They, they do these little um, cooperation co- competition tests using game theory. Um, and they, they, they would be more generous. Um, and so um, they were, they say, wait, wait. So playing these cooperative games ends up actually changing people's behavior outside of the game for at least some period of time. Um, why is that? And again, they came back to the idea of social norms. Um, the context that these people knew each other was that, okay, the social norm is how we treat our, we treat each other nicely because we're cooperating together and we're dependent on each other. So that's the sort of like norm for this group. And I will of course continue using that because now that it's been set up, I try not to change my um, norms too often. That's a really powerful idea. So as a follow-up, um, we can do it afterwards through email. I'd love to get these links from you. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, share them with the group because I think for a lot of us in what our design, what we're designing, using the idea of making social norms visible um, and suggestive is a very powerful idea. Exactly how you do that. The devil's in the details, right? Yes. Yes. Very much so. Uh, we're going to just uh, take a few more minutes to close up and then we'll open up the floor for questions. So, Dan, a um, couple of more questions to close. One is you mentioned your interest in cooperation. What is your superpower as a designer? I mean, you've clearly got a lot of different awesome skills. Where's your sweet spot? Oh, if I knew that. Um, no. Um, so, uh, one what of the things I tr- light you up. What you know? What makes you excited yeah. to get up? Yeah. And- um, so, one of the things that I try to do is I'm constantly trying to like identify a skill that I lack in and then improve upon that. And this is like these are these are year long quests, if you will. Like, um, so one of my quests right now is to make uh, pro social cooperative games. Um, and uh, I've had some experience with that. I've had some success with that. Um, but it's a deep, deep, rich field. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily my superpower, but by sort of studying it obsessively and working at it over a period of years, the hope is, is that I'll become uh, much more capable of making those type of games. Um, so I've, I've accumulated like, like, the multiplayer um, games with social structures, that's sort of an area that uh, I find fascinating and exciting to work on. Um, for a while, I was focused on um, evergreen games, games that you could play for years and that wouldn't get boring. So sort of what are the, how do we build these rich, deep systems that people can engage with for a very, very long period of time? Um, and uh, I feel like I did that. And so um that's part of my arsenal now, but it's not my, my main focus. Um, previous to that, I was really interested in, uh, you know, product innovation and having projects, products. Um, so a lot of our, our, a lot of our games are, um, they're, they're innovative in that they're in a new genre or they're trying something new or they're experimental in some fashion. Um, most game designers, I would say most working game designers tend to instead, um, what do they tend to do? They tend to take something that already works and then make a plus 10% variation on it. 
And I'm less interested in that. I'd rather go down to the roots of an idea and sort of reinvent the thing to fit the current environment, which is, again, much more that entrepreneurial product innovation perspective. Well, you're probably one of the world experts in cooperative gaming. So it seems that you might have some skills to bear to bring to that. Are the games you're working on, do they have any co-op in them? Uh, yeah, so we've got an MMO, which is Steambirds, and that one has co-op in it. Um, we have a couple of single-player games that are less cooperative, but I hope to make them one day. Um, and then there's another design that I'm working on that I'm excited about, uh, which is a... Oh, I don't know what you call these games. I've heard them called MMORTSs. Have you seen games like Travian or some of the old web games back in the day? Sorry, what would be a good example? Clash of Clans is vaguely genetically related to this. So they're games where you play like you play five minutes a day and then you basically that's all you can do. And they're multiplayer and often they involve like I build up my city and then I go and I build units and then I attack somebody and the attack takes 24 hours to complete. And then they attack me back and I get into an alliance and we have politics and so on and so forth. You know, like I grab all your resources and I become bigger on a leaderboard type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Very leaderboard centric. But anyway, this this genre is uh, one of the most popular genres in the world. It is like one of the largest drivers of revenue. It's uh, it's it's. It's bigger than adventure games. It's bigger than real-time strategy games. You know, when you see one of those horrible advertisements for like Kate Upton or whatever it is, or My Lord, or, you know, those, those things that they average, the little sleazy ads that you see in the corner of websites, those are for this style of game. Because you can play them in web browser, you can play them in mobile, you can play them on your PC. It was originally a U.S. innovation, and then it moved to Germany, and then it moved to Asia. So it's kind of a uh, funky... Uh, funky history there. In terms of cooperative, I thought these games are really horrible in the psychology that you use. It's all about like beating up on other people and competition. Can we make a purely cooperative version of that? So that's, that's the sort of design task I've uh, sort of set myself. Wow. Yeah. Have you cracked it? I think so. We have to do some more prototyping, but I think I've cracked it. Thank you so much, Dan for coming and sharing your wisdom and your perspective. As always, it's very, very stimulating and mind-expanding. And I can't wait to play your upcoming games. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim, the shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.